Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. Frankly, my dear, I don't give a damn. He's looking at you, kid. All right, Mr. DeMille, I'm ready for my close-up. Oh, I've been thinking. Well, what do you want to do that for? Fasten your seatbelts. It's going to be a bumpy night. They call me Mr. Tibbs. Welcome to 99 Years 100 Films, the podcast where we look at every winner of the Best Picture Academy Award in release order and see why the film is so highly regarded. This time around, Trey Hooks, the usual co-host, and I are looking at All the King's Men. So how are you doing, Trey? About as well as can be expected in the times we're living in, Blaine. How about yourself? Uh, about the same, yeah. All right, so we are, as we said, looking at All the King's Men. A 1949 release. It was actually released on November 8th, 1949. It was directed by Robert Rawson, who also wrote the screenplay based on a story called All the King's Men by Robert Penn Warren. So we will read the plot summary from Wikipedia here. So thanks to whoever wrote this Wikipedia article. The story of the rise of politician Willie Stark from a rural county seat to the governor's mansion is depicted in the film. He goes into politics, railing against the corruptly run county government, but loses his race for county treasurer in the face of unfair obstacles placed by the local machine. Stark teaches himself law and, as a lawyer, continues to fight the local establishment, championing the local people and gaining popularity. He eventually rises to become a candidate for governor, nearly losing the first race, then winning on his second attempt. Along the way, he loses his innocence and becomes as corrupt as the politicians he once fought against. As he rises, Stark flanders and gets involved with many women, making his PR man slash journalist Jack Burden's own girlfriend, Anne Stanton, his mistress. Stark's son Tommy drinks to deal with his feelings about his father, eventually crashes his car, injuring himself and killing his female passenger. When Stark bullies Tommy into playing a football game, Tommy becomes paralyzed after a brutal hit. Stark who had always dealt with those who got in his way by any means, begins to see his world start to unravel, and he discovers that not everyone can be bought off. The story has a complex series of relationships. All is seen through the eyes of the journalist, Jack Burden, who admires Stark, and even when disillusion still sticks by him. Stark's campaign assistant, Sadie, is clearly in love with Stark and wants him to leave his wife, Lucy. When Stark's reputation is brought into disrepute by Judge Stanton, Anne's uncle, he seeks to blacken the judge's name. When Jack finds evidence of the judge's possible wrongdoing a quarter century earlier, he hides it from Stark. Anne gives the evidence to Stark, who uses it against her uncle, who immediately commits suicide. Anne seems to forgive Stark, but her brother Adam, the surgeon who helped save Tommy's life after the car crash, cannot. After Stark wins an impeachment investigation, Adam assassinates Stark. The doctor, in turn, is shot down by Sugar Boy, Stark's fawning assistant. Having lost their respect for him, Jack and Anne agree to find a way to destroy Stark's reputation just as he dies. So that's uh, fairly compressed, but it does hit all the major beats. It does. So, overall, what did you think of this? A very good and very timely film, perhaps? Yeah. It it is frustratingly timeless, isn't it? (laughs) It is. You know, if you read further down in the Wikipedia article, it tells about how the lead role, which... 
Broderick Crawford played of Willie Stark was initially offered to John Wayne, and John Wayne turned it down as flatly unpatriotic and un-American, and you kind of go, oh, wow, what kind of blinders did he have on, or what would he have thought of today? Mm-hmm. And the IMDb has more details of the exact verbiage of his rejection. It's it's not subtle. It, it is quite detailed. But it's it's a really good film. It took me by surprise a little bit, where most of the films that we have watched and covered up until this point, there's been some familiar element for me to have a toehold with, whether it be a director I was familiar with, or even if it's someone like um, Paul Muni, who's no longer really known an actor or actress I was familiar with. In a lot of ways, this was a production of a lot of unknowns for me, and that was refreshing. Yeah, the only actor I actually recognized was Paul Ford, and his role is so small he wasn't even credited. He's got a very distinctive voice. He was out there promoting the impeachment, and I know him as as Mayor Shin from The Music Man from 1962. And, uh, or, yeah, I think it was Colonel Ford on Sergeant Bilko as well. Uh, yeah, they got Colonel John T. Hall on The Phil Silvers Show with Sergeant Bilko, Colonel Wilberforce in It's a Mad, Mad, Bad, Bad World, and Colonel Wainwright Purdy III on the, the Tea House of the August Moon are his other three IMDb best known fours. So there's Mayor George Shin and three different colonels. And here a state senator. <laughs> yep. What did you think of the Jack Burden character and his journey through the film? I, I'll, I'll just pause there and get your thoughts. I think that not just Burden, but a lot of the characters in this film are disturbingly realistic. Where they're coming in, they get swept up in ideals, doing a good thing. And then when they start making small allowances for the bad decisions, you can see it build and build and build. And you can see the toll it's taken on them. So you can see that Burden is getting less and less enamored. He, he starts off being assigned to this honest politician, and he genuinely believes that's what they found. He truly believed in him. By the end, you can see he doesn't, but he's still not able to just get up and walk away. And I can easily see someone falling into that, where because the changes are so incremental, it's hard to say, well, no, today is too much farther than yesterday. I'm not crossing that line until I realize that the, the reasonable line was like a year behind you. And then what do you do? And, you know, he plays it well. I think if maybe there's a flaw in the film, they kind of jump over a lot of those incremental changes, if you will. Mm -hmm. You know, you, you see Willie Stark go from struggling politician to he wins. And I think it's really interesting as to why he wins. We can touch on that. And then instantly we see him with all of the old cronies that he railed against. So to us as an audience, it's a little jarring. But then you see Burton right there, right in step. Even though it comes at a huge personal cost to him, you know, how can you stay with this guy and support with this guy when, you know, he's having an affair with and has stolen from you your girlfriend, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that is true. But, well, yeah, as you said, they do. There's a lot of time compression at that point in the film because when you first see him, he's going for the county treasurer. 
he fails, he gives up politics, he does most of his legal studies at that time, and then he is a lawyer when they come back, and he runs for governor once, fails, and then wins in the next governor campaign. Mm -hmm. So I assume a governor term is four years? Yeah. So this this is one of those movies where there's a lot of time passage. It's time to earn a law degree, time to, to do this. The film is under two hours. It's 110 minutes, but it probably spans a couple of decades. I think the original cut of this was like 250 minutes before it hit the editing room. Uh-huh. Which I'm wondering if more of it was at the front end, because you're right. If It does do a really good job of kind of showing the rise and fall of Willie Stark. When he was running for county treasurer, he was railing against graft. And then there's an accident at the local high school because shoddy building materials were used and a lot of kids die. And that becomes kind of the lightning rod that thrust him in the public eye. You know, there's a lot of Willie, Willie was right type of articles. And in his first run for governor is really interesting because, yes, he gets support, but he's a straw man candidate. You literally have a political machine pushing him to split a vote. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, that was his whole purpose, which, you know, we've never seen since. Not with rappers on the ballots or anything. But yeah, I, I wonder how much of that is Robert Rawson, because apparently he had a very hard time cutting things. Anything he shot, he wanted to keep to the point that he ended up just walking away and letting the editor have an almost free hand. He knew that the 250-minute cut he had wasn't working, but it had been going on so long that the producer was ready to release that. And then he told he told the editor, find the center of each scene and cut 100 feet of film before and after that. And in these days, on a black and white film, you know, you're looking at the... Uh, basically, a foot of film was about a second. So I mean, he was saying just, you know, slash and slash before and after. So I, I wonder how much of that montage would have been fully expanded. Mm-hmm. But a lot of it, it it was just cutting the scenes. So a lot of the scenes start happening when things are already in progress. So you'll get some jump cuts. So you'll jump from one conversation to another conversation that's already in progress, which... Uh, it apparently it was very compelling, and I can kind of see that it's tough because so many political films that I saw early when I was first being introduced to political films, they were actually Canadian political documentaries they were watching in class, and that was the way they were cut. But they were also made after this, so I find mm-hmm. myself asking, were they inspired by this to cut that way, or is that just because I am in Canada, and I don't know if you're familiar with sort of Canadian film history. When the National Film Board of Canada was born and created and Norman McLaren was set up as his head, he looked at the Hollywood machine that was already running in the United States and said, we can't compete with that on a fictional level. So rather than trying to go head to head when we don't have their resources and don't have their infrastructure, let's decide to excel in areas that American filmmakers are not really working that hard at. So the the two areas that the National Film Board of Canada really developed were documentaries and animation, which was kind of Norman McLaren's baby. I think Begone Dalton Care may be the best example of pure animation, as in he just got film and painted on it, including the soundtrack. So that has an optical soundtrack that he literally painted on the film. Wow. 
So it, it is an interesting short film for sure. It's I'd say it's the purest example of animation, possibly followed by Duck Amuck. So he was anyway, Canada really developed the documentary side. And so I've seen a lot of the political documentaries, but you know, they're talking about the innovative ending and the political films I saw in social studies were edited like this film quite consistently. And they were usually about elections that took place after this point. So I strongly suspect that they made some conscious effort to imitate this, or maybe there was just no choice because they were, you know, only so many cameras and they were walking into rooms with conversations that had already started. But that is definitely the feel you get in a lot of the political conversations. And there are a few montages, especially during the impeachment, which as viewers, we know he was guilty and should have been impeached, but he won the scenario, partly because a bunch of his faithful followers were outside picketing to say, no, let him out, because they felt he was the kind of person that they wanted in that governor's seat. Let's talk about some of the other characters. You know, we mentioned Jack Burden, who whose biggest crime was probably obfuscating the truth, if you will, in addition to his moral compromises. At the beginning of the film, he's a journalist, not necessarily the Clark Kent, Lois Lane crusading type of journalist, but still at least a competent uh, journalist. And while the uh, Wikipedia synopsis mentions that he's Willie Stark's PR man, he, he's actually Willie Stark's muckraker. Willie uses his research abilities, if you will, to go and um, uh, unearth dirt on Willie's opponents. You know, he's got his little black book, but it's not a black book in the normal connotation of that term. But this film is just rife with morally compromised characters. Mm -hmm. Yeah, all the way through, because we've got Ann Stanton, we've already mentioned. So she was the niece of the man assigned as attorney general when Stark first took over, but who was hesitant to work with the man from the beginning. She was officially Jack Burton's girlfriend and then up to Stark's mistress. We've got Tom Stark, the guy who was Willie's son, who was drinking and it's like, yeah, whatever, I'll still be the football star. That's what you want, right? So he was struggling with it. Again, Sadie Burke, who was, uh, you know, that tough as nails woman working for Stark, who was in love with him and she was upset that he wouldn't leave his wife and be with her. She hated all the other women. And Jack Burton pointed out to her, he's like, well, what do you expect? Like, we know this man is a womanizer. Do you really expect him to end up with you? And this is her debut role. She was one of several actresses who were stuck outside in a long line for hours on a hot day. She just lost her temper and chewed them out and talked about how, you know, how nasty these conditions were, whatnot, and stormed off, then decided that's the woman we want for this part. She's perfect. So they cast her, not from her audition, but from or for fit of anger for being treated like crap during the audition. We've got Adam Stanton, who, you know, as long as the hospital was funded, he was willing to look the other way for a lot of it. He hated Stark, but still did everything he could to save Tom after his injury. And then ultimately, you know, it, it cost lives. And when Stark makes it through his impeachment... Adam is the one that kills him, which it took me by surprise in this film. I wasn't quite expecting that ending. And then I watched the trailer for the 2006 remake of this that was included on the DVD set. And 
I, I would have been very upset if I went into the film with that because they actually include images of the gun being loaded and fired in that trailer. I'm thinking that that only happens once in this movie and it's in the last two minutes. Yeah, one of those cases where the trailer maybe spoils too much. Well, and I thought they did a really good job of um, making Willie a complex character. He clearly has a volatile temper, which is something Broderick Crawford excels at bringing across. But while Willie's corrupted, it's not that he does nothing for the state. It's just that nothing he does for the state comes without an ulterior motive and from the right place necessarily. So, you know, we do see he builds a college or at least a college stadium. He builds libraries. He builds, you know, a new hospital. But the main impetus seems to be to put the Stark name outside the front of every building. But it, it is one of those complex things to where I'll say you have a bad person. You, you have a bad person doing good things for bad reasons. This is very much an ends justifies the means type of film. Yeah, it almost feels like the good is the afterthought that he's doing to keep the voters happy. And it's really about promoting him, but would like a new hospital. So yeah, as you said, he makes sure his name is on that hospital. And there, there's a, a trucker who was opposing him. He says, well, you know what? There's a lot of stuff moving. Maybe a contract would be in. And the trucker is just saying, no, I don't play the game that way. But there's a few people who do. And there's guys, uh, I believe Dolph Pillsbury was another character. He was a, an older politician who was opposing Stark. And Stark dictated a resignation letter, made him sign it, but not date it. And he says, I'll fill in the date when I need it. So it is, yeah, he, you really do see him going down. And at first he was very much a man of the people, but to his credit, like even when one of the reporters said, well, what about the accusations that you've been making deals with the wrong people? And he said, yeah, I have. He, there was no pretense. He was saying, but good has to come out of bad. We build good with the bad. So yeah, he gives them what they need so that the people can, can get what they have to have. It's one of the things that I think resonates with this people is the film. It makes sure nobody is all good or all bad. Everybody has lines they won't cross. Every choice does, or almost every choice does have some kind of upside. Or at least you understand how they got there. So you, you do get the moral ambiguity, but at the end, you know, this is not the kind of person we should have playing politics because the motives are not the right motives and he's not as beneficial for the people as someone else could be. It, it really illustrates how people are motivated by self-interest and how they can become trapped by self-interest. You know, whether it's Sadie, who, you know, ironically is kind of the one who puts Stark in this arena and then can't get off, if you will, can't get out. Or, and to where there's a really nice subtext. You mentioned she's the niece of the um, attorney general and a formal judge. She is. But I think it was her father who had previously been governor. And there's this sense of there being a particular lifestyle or being a desire to be close to power that is what drives her attraction to Stark. Mm -hmm. Played by Joanne Drew, who may be better known for her work in She Wore a Yellow Ribbon that came out in the same year. And I don't know if they were, I don't recall if they were married 
during the making of this film, but her and John Ireland, who played Jack Burden, were at one point husband and wife. Okay. Which, which <laughs> this is a small thing. I struggled with the film a little bit at the beginning because I kept hearing his name is Jack Burton. So I kept having flashes to Big Trouble in Little China every time his name was mentioned for about the first 20 minutes. And then it suddenly clicked that it was a D and not a T sound that they were making. Okay. And yeah, looking at her biography on the IMDb, they were married when the film was released. And probably for a lot of the filming, there's uh, yeah, her first marriage was to Dick Hames from September 21st, 1941 until June 28th, 1949, when she got divorced. There's three children from that marriage. And then nine days later, she married John Ireland. August 7th, 1949, they divorced in May 1957. And then she married George Rogers P. Rose in 1963, was married until January 72. That marriage ended with his death. And then she remarried that December, and that marriage lasted 20 years, ending again with the death of her spouse. So, and then she passed away herself about four years after that. So, yeah, with August, I'm not exactly sure what the filming dates are, but it's it's entirely possible that they, well, they had to be married for some part of the filming with the November release in these days. Mm -hmm. And the fact that there was a nine-day gap between her first marriage and that second divorce tells me they were probably involved before that first marriage ended. That's just a hunch. Yeah. Speculation on my part, but... A nine-day turnaround is, that strikes me as one of those we're still together for the sake of the children kind of marriage ending. Marriage is over for a while. So yeah, she's she probably does have one of the more impressive biographies. Again, as someone who's not a Western fan in general or a, a John Wayne fan, Red River, She Wore a Yellow Ribbon, 7-Eleven Ocean Drive, those are her other three best known fours of her 60 credits. And I don't think I've seen those. If I've seen her in anything up to this point, it would have been her guest role on the 1967 Green Hornet series. But that's been a while, so I didn't place her. The other potential standout name would be uh, Mercedes Cambridge, who played Sadie. We've mentioned her role several times. People would not have recognized her face from the performance. But she w did the voiceover work for the possessed Regan and The Exorcist. Mm -hmm. Yes, I'm seeing that now. She was also in A Giant with Elizabeth Taylor, Rock Hudson, and James Dean. And her other best known for is Johnny Guitar. So, oh, and she was in an episode of Magnum P.I. in 1981. I haven't gotten that far in my rewatch. Yes, we've got a lot of impressive talents in this, but for some reason they are just... Aside from Paul Ford, none of them really stood out as, oh, that person I know from this, which was in a lot of ways good because I could accept them as the characters they are now. And I wasn't, you know, fighting in my psyche for knowing that, you know, they're usually play heroes. Why are they playing a villain? Right? Like if they if they were to cast Tom Hanks as a villain right now, a lot of people would have a hard time accepting it. Right. As opposed to if it was his first job. Though, not to take us too far down a tangent, that, that can be effective in what lies beneath i wasn't expecting the swerve because the swerve involved harrison ford why why would harrison ford be a villainous person it's indiana jones and han solo you know so mm -hmm. yeah it, it can work to defy expectations when so yeah i guess if it's someone you're if you're supposed to be surprised they're the bad guy it can work quite well 
So shall we run through the nominations of the year? Yes. All right. So, so this obviously won for mm -hmm. Best Picture. This ceremony took place on March 23rd, 1950, hosted by Paul Douglas. And for Best Picture, it beat out Battleground, The Heiress, A Letter to Three Wives, and 12 O'Clock High. It lost Best Director, though it was nominated, along with Battleground, Fallen Idol, and The Heiress. The award went to Joseph Mankiewicz for A Letter for Three Wives. Broderick Crawford did win Best Actor for his work as Willie Stark, beating out Kirk Douglas, Gregory Peck, Richard Todd, and John Wayne, who took Sands of Iwo Jima, or Iwo Jima instead of this film. Uh, Olivia de Havilland won for Best Actress in The Heiress. There were no nominations for this film in this category, but she beat out Jean Crane, Susan Hayward, Deborah Kerr, and Loretta Young. And they were all nominated for films that we haven't mentioned yet. Pinky, My Foolish Heart, Edward, My Son, and Come to the Stable. Best Supporting Actor, Dean Jagger, won for 12 O'Clock High, but John Ireland was nominated for his work as Jack Burden. There's also Arthur Kennedy, Ralph Richardson, and James Whitmore for the champion, the heiress, and Battleground. Mercedes McCambridge, as we said, made her debut here as Sadie, and she won for Best Supporting Actress. She beat out Ethel Barrymore from Pinky, Celeste Holm from Come to the Stable, Elsa Lanchester, also Come to the Stable, and Ethel Waters for Pinky. So it sounds like Pinky and Come to the Stable had some very compelling female performances. Mm -hmm. They're showing up in both actress categories, and that's about it. So Best Screenplay, again, this was nominated, but it lost to Joseph Mankiewicz for A Letter to Three Wives, which he adapted from Letter to Five Wives by John Plimpner. Bicycle Thieves, Champion, and Fallen Idol were also nominated. So this is actually the last time for 30 years that Best Picture winners would not win at least one of Best Director or Best Writer as well. So it's, it's a little unusual to have that combination. Uh, for Best Story and Screenplay, that went to Battleground, beating out Jolson Sings Again, Paisan, Passport to Pimlico, and The Quiet One. Best Motion Picture Story went to The Stratton Story, beating out Come to the Stable, It Happens Every Spring, Sands of Iwo Jima, and White Heat. Best Documentary went to Daybreak and Udi, which is a British documentary that beat out Kenji Comes Home, which was filmed on location in Japan, but it looks like it was a North American production based on the names involved. Best Documentary Short Subject was actually tied. A Chance to Live and So Much for So Little beat out 1848 and The Rising Tide. So Much for So Little was actually directed by Chuck Jones, hmm. who is much better known for his Looney Tunes work and Merry Melodies. So Best One Real Live Action Short Subject was Aquatic House Party, beating out Roller Derby Girl, So You Think You're Not Guilty, Spills and Chills and Water Tricks. The two real sort, short subject went to Van Gogh, beating out The Boy and the Eagle, The Chase of Death, Grath is Always Greener, and Snow Carnival. Best animated short for sentimental reasons with Pepe Le Pew beat out Canary Row, Hatch Up Your Troubles, The Magic Flute, and Toy Tinkers. The best scoring, The Heiress, beat out Beyond the Forest and Champion. That's for dramatic or comedy picture. Best scoring of a musical picture, On the Town, beat out Jolson Sings Again and Look for the Silver Lining. Best Original Song, Baby It's Cold Outside, from Neptune's Daughter, by Frank Loser, which is probably not as popular now. Although, that, that's a tangent we don't need to get into, but some of the verbiage used there actually meant something else at the time. Mm -hmm. Anyway, so that beat out It's a Great Feeling, the title song from that film, 
Lavender Brew from So Dear to My Heart, My Foolish Heart, again the title song, and Through a Long and Sleepless Night from Come to the Stable. Best Sound Recording went to 12 O'Clock High, beating out Once More My Darling and Sounds of Iwo Jima. Best Art Direction Black and White went to The Heiress, Come to the Stable, and that, or went to The Heiress, beating out Come to the Stable and Madame Bovary. Best Art Direction Color, Little Women beat out Adventures of Don Juan and Sarah Band for Dead Lovers. Best Cinematography Black and White, Battleground beat out Champion, Come to the Stable, The Heiress, and Prince of Foxes. Best Cinematography Color, She Wore a Yellow Ribbon beat out The Barclays of Broadway, Jolson Sings Again, Little Women, and Sand. Black and White Costume Design, The Heiress beat out Prince of Foxes. Color Costume Design, Adventures of Don Juan beat out Mother is a Freshman. For Best Editing, Champion did beat All the King's Men. It was nominated in this category as well. It also beat out Battleground, Sands of Iwo Jima, and The Window. And for special effects, Mighty Joe Young beat out Tulsa. Uh, honorary awards went to Fred Astaire, Cecil B. DeMille, and Gene Herschelt. The best foreign language film went to The Bicycle Thief, which actually is probably the film of everything we've listed here. That was the first one I've seen of the 1949 releases, because we saw it in film studies. It is very well made. Uh, Juvenile Award went to Bobby Driscoll for, you know, work. This year's release would have been Dear to My Heart. He was also in Song of the South. So as far as the multiple nominated films were concerned, The Heiress got the most nominations with eight. And then All the King's Men and Come to the Stable had seven each. Battleground and Champion with six. Sands of Iwo Jima and 12 O'Clock High with four. Jolson Sings Again, Letter of the Three Wives and Pinky with three. And then Adventures of Don Juan, Fallen Out of Little Women, My Foolish Heart and Prince of Foxes each with two. And then The Heiress won four, All the King's Men won three, and uh, Battleground, Letter to Three Wives, and Twelve O'Clock High took home two each. The, ba- the Bicycle Thief also kind of ties into the overall theme of uh, moral corruption that we have going with this film in terms of where the father starts at the beginning and where he is at the end. That it does, yeah. Although there, it's a little easier to see because that's, you know, he needed the bicycle to work with his family. Mm-hmm. So it, the motivation is a little bit easier to justify, but still not a good one. So um, before we move on to the Golden Globes, is there anything you wanted to say about the Oscars and their decisions here? Have you seen the other Best Picture nominees? I've seen all of them except for 12 O'Clock High. As you were going through them, I was wondering how often in the Academy circles some of the behind-the-scenes stories get out. You know, we we talked about uh, Rawson's difficulty editing the film. I wonder if maybe that or some of the abrupt cuts gave the impression of a less assured hand, and if that's what cost it the Best Director Award. Not that A Letter to Three Wives isn't deserving of that award. I'm just wondering if that, you know, it becomes more unusual as time goes on, but it's unusual for Best Picture and Best Director to be split. And I'm just curious if that's the possible cause. Perhaps that would have perhaps elevated it in the editing category, which it also lost, but yeah, it is worth considering. You know, I, it's the only one of the nominees I've seen, and this is actually my first exposure to it. The only other one... Not that any of the films that I saw were bad, but the only other one that I would strongly recommend that I thought was a contender for Best Picture would be A Letter to Three Wives. None of the female leads were 
nominated for Best Actress or Best Supporting Actress for it, but it is noir as a genre or a subgenre, however you want to look at it, was very prevalent at this period, and you see a lot of bleed-overs. So, like, I've heard All the King's Men be referred to as a noir political drama. A Letter to Three Wives is a noir domestic drama. You have Celeste Holm giving a great voiceover-only performance as an unseen antagonist that literally sends a letter to three wives, as the title says, saying, I am leaving tonight with one of your husbands. And then it follows the three wives as they're at a charity event, each one reflecting on their relationship and their insecurities, trying to figure out, are they the one um, who's being left? What could they have done that caused it? What would their life be if it's them? Leading up to the climax of finding out which which of the three wives has been left. So it, it rings a lot of tension out of what would typically be very soapy melodrama. Okay, interesting. All right, so let's run through the Golden Globes and then we'll see how everything has stacked up over the years on Letterboxd and on the IMDb. Um, Golden Globes agreed and gave all the King's Men Best Picture. They're actually starting to list runners-up now because it was still right in votes. But their next runner-up was Come to the Stable. Hmm. Best Actor, Broderick Crawford for All the King's Men. Runner-up was Richard Todd for The Hasty Heart. Best Actress, Olivia de Havilland for The Heiress. And runner-up was Deborah Kerr for Edward, My Son. The supporting actor went to James Whitmore for Battleground, beating out David Bryan for Intruder in the Dust. Best Performance by Supporting Actress, again, Mercedes McCambridge. So we're seeing a lot of agreement here. And then Miriam Hopkins for The Heiress was the next one. And Robert Rawson did win Best Director at the Golden Globes, beating out William Wyler for The Heiress. So the Academy winner wasn't even in the nominations list. Best Screenplay went to Battleground, beating out Rope of Sand. Best Original Score went to The Inspector General, beating out All the King's Men. Foreign Language Film, Bicycle Thieves beat out The Fallen Idol. I'm not sure how The Fallen Idol from the United Kingdom qualifies as Best Foreign Language Film and <laughs> Best Foreign Country. Uh, black and White Cinematography Champion was the winner, beating out All the King's Men. Color Cinematography, The Adventures of Ichabod and Mr. Toad beat out On the Town. Wow. Uh, I don't think I've ever heard of animation being nominated in that category before. <laughs> no, especially... Yeah, I, I would think that cinematography is about making use of the camera in the physical space, whereas an animated film... I mean... I'm not going to say they're wrong, it's just counterintuitive. Yeah, I mean, I like literally the only live action is the books sliding off the bookshelf and opening up to start the cartoons. <laughs> I mean... <laughs> yeah. So they gave it an award for promoting international understanding to the hasty heart. Runner-up was Monsieur Vincent. New Star of the Year went to Richard Todd and Hasty Heart, beating out Juano Hernandez. That's for actor and New Star of the Year actress. Mercedes McCambridge and All the King's Men beat out Ruth Roman for champion. So again, at this point, there's a lot of overlap between the Golden Globes mm -hmm. and the Oscars. Now, if we go to how Letterboxd users have ranked the releases from 1949. So over the years, Letterboxd users have said actually late spring is the best film of the year followed by The Third Man, and the first movie that was actually nominated is The Heiress. And then we have White Heat, Kind Hearts and Coronets, The Setup, 
stray dog, a family like many others, silence de la mer, act of violence, a number of these. A letter to three wives is the next nominee, which is actually 15th highest in the year. 12 o'clock high shows up the 29th of the year. On the town and battleground are 35th and 36th. She wore a yellow ribbon is the 40th highest ranked film of the year. And then All the King's Men shows up in spot number 42. Okay. So that's with an average rating of 3.6 out of 5. So IMDB users have given it an average rating of 7.5 out of 10. So a little bit higher, that 3.6 out of 5 clearly translates to a 7.2 out of 10. And if we look at how that ranks up through the year, IMDB people have put it at number 16. And that's with things that have gotten at least 1,000 votes? Yes, that's at least 1,000 votes. So that, again, could be the the difference because I haven't figured out how to filter letterboxed by number of votes. So yeah, there may be just little watched or voted by reputation showing up a letterboxed. Um, But IMDb agrees. Late spring is number one. Mm, Okay. So they, they both put that Japanese film as the best of the year, which I know is out in a Criterion Collection edition. I haven't seen it myself. White Heat. Directed by Raoul Walsh, starring James Cagney, Virginia Mayo, Evan O'Brien, and Margaret Witcherly, is number two. The Third Man is number three. Then The Heiress, Kind Hearts and Coronets, The Setup, Stray Dog. Twelve O'Clock High is the next nomination to show up here. That's in number eight. Letter of the Three Wives is number nine. Thieves Highway, the film noir, is in both lists. Silence de la Mer is number twelve. Secret Garden, Intruder in the Dust, Crisscross has showed up on both lists, and then All the King's Men. So it looks like, over time, they, they both agree that while, while All the King's Men is not a bad movie, it's not the best of the nominees. Looking strictly at the nominees, I think everyone's putting the heiress at number one here. Which surprises me. The heiress is a fine film, and Olivia de Havilland gives an extremely strong performance. I have no concerns about her nomination and win for Best Actress here, especially if you only know her from Gone with the Wind. But I found a lot of their performances kind of stilted in the heiress. It's a turn of the century. It's set in kind of turn of the century New York. And you just have this odd juxtaposition between Ralph Richardson playing Olivia de Havilland's father and then Montgomery Clift as the suitor that kind of drives the narrative and the drama. And there were just a lot of, outside of Olivia de Havilland, I found I thought a lot of the performances were very stilted. So not a bad movie by any means, but I kind of felt like it is where it is because of the showcase of one actor or actress, that's the case maybe. Yeah, and maybe that was it because they... Some people have said that, yeah, when it comes to the Oscar nominations, a lot of times people vote for, for friends as well, because when they're starting to realize what an Oscar win can do for someone's career, right, you can immediately ask for more money in every paycheck from then on, things like that. Maybe people just really liked Olivia de Havilland, and that was enough to push them through. Personally, again, I'm not going to say that they're wrong. I haven't seen a lot from this year, obviously. I haven't gotten around to White Heat yet, although I do own it. I do enjoy DOA. But I wouldn't say it's better than this. That also came out this year. I'm not, are you familiar with DOA with Edmund O'Brien? I am. 
I came to it backwards. I had seen the 80s remake with Dennis Quaid and Meg Ryan first. And then when I found out that was a remake, sought out the Edmund O'Brien film. Okay. Um, but yeah, it is one. It's public domain now. So it, it's worth checking out. It's a, a mystery with a nice twist mm-hmm. for the sake of the fans or the, the listeners here. It actually starts off with a man going into a police station to report a murder. They ask, who is the victim? And his answer is me, which, you know, obviously is kind of an unusual way to start a film. Yeah. So, yeah, that one is worth checking out, but I wouldn't say it was worth Best Picture. Well, like I said, I, I'm i happy with the choice of, like, like I said, with the ones that I've seen, I'm happy with all the Kingsmen being the selection. If they had picked a letter for three wives, I couldn't tell them that they had been wrong there. Either both are equally fine films to me. I think both of them are superior to The Heiress and Battleground, and I, I just haven't seen 12 O'Clock High yet. So who would you recommend this to? I, I feel like this belongs in the same political drama stratosphere as All the King's Men or JFK. I mean, there's not a there's not like a mystery component here, but I, I still feel like it's in that same kind of look at the underbelly of politics, warts and all. If you like just good, gritty, cynical takes on things, I, I would recommend it for that as well. The As we've been recording, what has just been resonating in my mind is that this film would make a really good double feature with Eli Kazan's A Face in the Crowd. Yeah, I can I could go along with that. Yeah, it is this is an interesting look at the ugly side of US politics, I think. So people with interest in that should check this out because you could see how a fundamentally good person could be corrupted over time with you know, sort of that road to hell is paved with good intentions as they start to forget that they're working for the people and start working more for the betterment of themselves. Just another thought that I had real quick. I'm sorry, Blaine. This would also make an interesting double feature if you watched this and then the Kevin Klein comedy, Dave. Yeah, that is also true because you could, it's another one with the influence of politics. Yeah, and I would definitely watch this first. You will leave in a happier mood if you watch Dave second. Yes. (laughs) But there are characters in Dave that kind of end up where characters start at the beginning of all the king's men that that was kind of the neat little dichotomy that just suddenly struck me yeah 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 it's definitely there all right so shall we tell our listeners what to check out for next month yes next month we are going to be in for a bumpy ride with all about eve i've been waiting for this one for a while yeah i have been looking forward to this it's actually a good year because they're i'm gonna have to somehow carve out time to watch extra films because I haven't seen any of the films that were nominated. But with All About Eve, Born Yesterday, Father of the Bride, King Solomon's Minds, and Sunset Boulevard, there's some... Sunset Boulevard and All About Eve, I've got to find time to watch both because they are somewhat legendary. They are. And even um, even Father of the Bride is someone's iconic. Uh, people today are probably more familiar with the... Um, uh, Steve Martin version, but this is the original basis for it. You also have um, Born Yesterday, which stars 
Broderick Crawford. You know, we talked about how an Oscar win can give you your career um, a, a bump. This was, I think, his next production after All the King's Men. And William Holden is in both Born Yesterday and Sunset uh, Boulevard. So if our listeners wish, they can hunt those two down and have a William Holden double feature. Okay. Yeah. And uh, one other note, I'm just seeing by the nominations here, because again, whether whether things are eligible with their nominations depends not just on when they're released worldwide, but when they're released in Los Angeles. The Third Man, starring Joseph Cotton and Orson Welles and directed by Carol Reed. The IMDb and Letterboxd were putting it in the 1949 mix because that's the release date. It was a British film, but I'm seeing it nominated on the 1950 list. So that's one of the reasons it wasn't up against All the King's Men. Its qualifying year was the following year of 1950. The, the best director nominees were for All About Eve, Asphalt Jungle, Born Yesterday, Sunset Boulevard, and The Third Man. So I have seen two of those, Asphalt Jungle and The Third Man. Yeah, we definitely have some good stuff to look forward to as we're getting into the 1950s. All right, so I guess you can check out All About Eve, if not a few more. And thank you for listening. Thanks, everyone. My mom always said life was like a box of chocolates. You never know what you're going to get. Please, sir. I want some more.